We began a study several weeks ago on how we got the Word of God, how we got our Bibles, and whether or not um, we can trust them. You know, we everything that we do is shaped by this Word that we study and that we learn. It is our final authority. It is our um, sole source for... Um, Growing in our faith is our sole source for our direction in life. And so we need to be able to answer the question, do we believe that this is the Word of God? How did these books in it become the Word of God? And so that is the study that we have been looking at. Um, if you, um, They were handing out some copies of it. Do we have any more? Does anybody need a copy of it, That what we're doing tonight? One back here in the back. Do we have another one? One left. Look there. You're the lucky winner. And if you need, if somebody else need one, anybody? All right. <clears throat> so I want to remind you, just a quick recap, that uh, basically we looked at what the Word of God claims for itself. Some of the claims that the Word of God makes is that it says that the law of God is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it is uh, pure, it is clean, it is true. Those are just a few of the claims that it makes for itself. Uh, some other claims is that it claims to be the ultimate spiritual authority in doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And that comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. So that is a, a very bold claim to say that there is no other source for, um, what did I say again, reproof, correction, doctrine, uh, instruction, righteousness, that the Bible is our only source for that. So that's a very bold claim. So we have to determine, do, do we believe that? Is there evidence here for us to, to, uh, to claim that this is true? Another claim it makes is that it is inerrant. That it does not have error. That's a big claim, right? One of the, one of the things I told you about, I had a buddy that I worked with for years, and um, I don't work with him anymore, but I worked with him for a lot of years, and one of the arguments that he would always throw up to me whenever we would talk about the Word of God is that it has passed through too many human hands to be without error. And so the Bible claims that it is inerrant. It actually says that it is like refined gold. It is finer than refined gold. It is purer than refined gold. So let me ask you a question. What is, what, give me some qualities of refined gold. All of the era has been took out of it, right? It's been, the refiner's fire has brought all of the slag and the impurities to the top, and they have been wiped out. And the Word of God claims that it is purer than refined gold. So again, it claims that it is without error. It says it is very pure, is what it says. It claims to be infallible, uh, again in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so we need to be able to address and see or examine and see whether or not these statements are actually true or not. Because we don't want to just look at circular reason and say, well, if the Bible says it, then it must be so, right? We want to be able to see where is the evidence that, that, that we can look at and say that we can trust what the Bible says. Uh, because again, Muslims have their Bible, right? Wouldn't you think it would be a good idea for them to ask the same question? And so why are we exempt from that question? 
So I'm not trying to get you to question your faith. I'm actually trying to solidify your faith in the Word of God and what your hope is in. And that's what we're trying to accomplish in this. We want to give it a thorough examination and we want to be able to say in our own hearts and our own minds that yes, I believe that this is the Word of God that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is the sole source for my doctrine, my reproof, my correction, my instruction in righteousness. It is the sole source of hope in this life. And if you can say that with all of your heart, then I believe it will change the way that you look at the Word of God and how you will um, study it, uh, seek God's Word out in it. So we want to be able to do that. One of the things we looked at is the publishing process. And we got to the first part of the publishing process, which is revelation. And so I think it's on page 3, if you've got that, at the very top of the page. The first part of God's publishing process, or how He gave us His Word, is through revelation. What do I mean by that? Well, I simply mean that God revealed Himself to us. The Bible tells us that God is spirit that His invisible attributes are clearly seen, right? Being understood by the things that are made, especially His eternal power, His divine nature, and His Godhead. And so, God is spirit. He is invisible. However, He has saw fit to reveal Himself in word. And it has been that way since the creation. For instance, when God revealed Himself in creation, how did He do it? He said, let there be light, Let there be uh, sun, moon, let the earth bring forth an abundance of plants. And so ultimately, He spoke things into existence. He always reveals Himself through Word. And so the Bible is also God continuing to reveal Himself through Word. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 have told us that the vehicles have varied. And it told us that in previous times and past times and many ways that God has spoken to us through things like prophets and visions and dreams and burning bushes and various other ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, right? And then through His Son to His apostles and so on. And so ultimately we see that God has many times revealed Himself through different vehicles in various ways, but one of the ways that He published His Word was He revealed Himself to man. Prophets, Jesus, um, uh, the apostles, whoever the, whatever the case may be, this is part of the process. And so, and one of the things that we talked about was that God told us in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said, well God, how... How are the people supposed to know? What if, what if they should ask, well, how do we know that this person and this prophet is actually speaking your word? And that's a good question, right? Because how many people have stepped up and said, God spoke to me? Well, how do we know that God actually spoke to this person? You remember, remember what God said? He said, when what I have told that person comes to pass then you will know that it was from me. In other words, you're going to be able to see the evidence in this prophet's life that what he is speaking and what he is saying is from God. Uh, We also saw that the Bible told us that God is going to make evident that they're from Him by signs and wonders. You know, Moses was able to do things that not many people were able to do. How many people have you known part Red Seas and million people walk across on dry land? 
um, with, with an army charging up behind them, or strike water in a desert and bring rock out from it. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he could do that too. Thank you, thank you. Y'all get the point, all right? Stay with me. So again, and, and this is the same thing that we saw with the apostles or, or with Jesus. In our Sunday school class, we're studying the Gospel of John, and at the end of John, John tells us his primary purpose for writing the book. He says, Jesus did many, many signs. So many that basically the books of the world couldn't contain all the things that he'd done. But these signs are recorded so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So in other words, when you go through and you read the Gospel of John, the main point of the book is that you see the signs that He did, the miracles that He did, the evidence of His life that proved that He didn't just say that He was the Son of God, He, uh, the Son of God, he proved that He was the Son of God. The same way with the apostles. And we looked at many scriptures uh, uh, over that uh, two weeks ago, I believe it was, where the apostles were given many miraculous signs and wonders so that their uh, witness to Jesus Christ as the resurrected Son of God would be proven and would, would be believable. And so God didn't just send them out there just to preach and there was nothing to back it up. They had, matter of fact, you remember they said that there were signs and wonders that were done by the hands of uh, Peter and Paul that when, pe when people came into the shadow of Peter, they were healed. When they touched handkerchiefs that Paul had touched, they were healed. And so ultimately God gave them the, the gifts that they needed to be able to, to be a witness and to prove. And again, we, if you want to go back and find that message a few weeks ago, we covered many scriptures throughout the New Testament that proved that. All right, But here's the point. God revealed Himself to prophets and He revealed His Word to them. God revealed Himself to, um, through Jesus to apostles. And then they proved that they were of God and that, that their word was trustworthy and believable. And so we have God's revelation given to us through man. Now that's the first part of the publishing process. Now that brings us to tonight. And this is where we move into the second part of God's publishing process in His Bible. And that's inspiration. So again, first God gives revelation. He reveals who He is to specific people in the world, alright? Second part is, He inspires them. And notice what it says next. It says, the revelation of God was captured in the writings of Scripture. So here's how we see who God is. God reveals Himself to these men, and then they are inspired to write. And as they write the Holy Scriptures... Basically, we are now given the account and the record through inspiration of these men. So, notice what it says again. It says, The revelation of God was captured in the writings of Scripture by means of inspiration. Now, this has more to do with the process by which God revealed Himself. So, in other words, what process did God use to reveal Himself to these men? Well, He inspired them. Alright, and keep going with him. It says, It has more to do with the process by which God revealed Himself than the fact of His self-revelation. 
And notice what he says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by what? By inspiration of God. Again, how do we know this? They proved it. Every one of the prophets proved that what, that what God was telling them is exactly what happened and exactly what they were able to do. The, the evidence was there to know that these men are of God and we should listen to them. All right? And so then he says next, uh, Peter explains the process. And here's what he says in 2 Peter 1 verse 20 through 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. This is the reason why we spend so much time teaching you how to interpret the Word of God. Because there are too many people that look at the Word of God and go, well, this is just what it means to me. And then the next person in the Bible study steps up and says, well, this is what it says to me. And this is what it means to me. Now, we can get to that point. But the problem is, most of the time, people begin there. The place you have to begin is, what did God mean? Right? Until we establish what God meant when He spoke through this person, we cannot answer the question, what does that now mean to me? You understand what I'm saying? If we began instead by just reading a scripture and going, well, here's what that means to me. Well, what you have just done, if you just gave that scripture a private interpretation, all right? And there is no prophecy of scripture that is a private interpretation, all right? And so it, it, God meant what He said. God, God had a specific reason for saying what He said. Now the question is, once we figure that out, how does that apply to me today? But we can't move to the application until we have first come up with the correct interpretation. Y'all tracking with me? Alright. So notice what he says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Why? For prophecy never came by the will of man. In other words, this is not Moses' words. This is, they, they were not Isaiah's words. They were not uh, Jeremiah's words. So on and so on and so on. This was the Word of God. And that's the reason why when they spoke, it usually began with, Thus says who? Thus says the Lord. Not this is what I say. And notice that when Paul wrote, if you are familiar with any of Paul's writings, that Paul would make a clear distinction. And he would say, now what I'm fixing to tell you is not from the Lord, it's just from me. And so there was always a clear distinction from these prophets and apostles to make sure that you understand that what is from the Lord, you're going to know. This is from the Lord, it's not from man. It never came by the will of man. But instead, look what happened. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. By this means... The Word of God was protected from human error in its original record by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what it's saying? If the Holy Spirit inspired these prophets that they were given the evidence to prove that God was speaking to them, working through them, and it was the Holy Spirit that was moving them to be inspired by this, then we can... there's only two conclusions we can draw from that. Number one, either the Holy Spirit is not reliable and it has error, or 
the Holy Spirit is absolutely reliable and He has indeed protected the Word to be without error, to be very pure. And so that's a bold claim. But is it a far-fetched claim to say that God can protect His Word? It's not a far-fetched claim. I don't care how many human hands it's gone through. Now, again, yes, we're going to get into the fact that the Bible warns us not to add to or take away, but we also can rest assured that the Bible says that it is without error, that it is infallible, and that the Holy Spirit inspired men, moved by Him, to write through their inspiration, right? Alright, and so let's keep reading. A section, uh, I'm sorry, it says that by this means the Word of God was protected from human error in its original record. That's an important thing to see too. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then again, you can look at scriptures and let's look at them like Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, just to see what we're talking about here. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. And we know ultimately when we read this scripture about the prophet being spoken of, he is um, primarily and ultimately speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to give us the, the Word of God. However, I believe this same truth applies also to all the prophets that God has ever spoke to and spoke through. So look at Deuteronomy 18 verse 18 and see what God says. And notice, start in verse 17. What's the first um, six or seven words of that verse? Alright, so who's speaking when we read this? Alright, so these are the Lord's words. And so, notice in verse 18, He says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, talking about Moses, from among their brothers, talking about the Jews, alright, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them what? So there we see that when God speaks to the prophet, that prophet speaks all that God has commanded. Right? Alright? And so it's important to see that God has made sure that in its original form, even though men are with error, He has made sure that when the prophet speaks and God speaks through him, he only speaks what God has spoken. Alright? And so um, that's one scripture. Now look with me at Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. And this is about the virgin bearing a, a son and his name is going to be called Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. But notice what it says about it in verse 22. All this took place to do what? To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by who? The prophet. So again, everything that God speaks to that, per, to that prophet, if that prophet is truly of God, he makes sure that it is without error that it is infallible, and that it will always accomplish what He has said is going to happen, right? And it is always going to be exactly as He said. God is not batting um, 
Uh, I don't know baseball terms. Y'all baseball people. God, what's a perfect batting? A thousand? Yeah, God is batting a thousand. God's not batting 999. Does that analogy stand to hold true? Am I right on that? And so God is batting a thousand when it comes to prophecy. And if it comes up as 999, guess what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. God is not 99% accurate. God is 100% accurate and it will happen exactly the way that He said it will happen or it is not of God. So again, God has protected His Word from human error in its original record through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? This is the reason why we can say to you that the Word of God in its original record and we make sure that the translations we use are as close to the original record as possible. That's the reason why we're very selective on the translations we use, alright? Because we want to make sure that we are as close to the original record as we can possibly be. And then it says, finally at the end of inspiration, that a section of Zechariah 7.12 describes it most clearly. And this is what it says. The law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. So there again shows you the revelation through inspiration. That God gave the law and His words and He sent them by His Spirit through the former prophets. This is how you got your Bible today. Okay? How do we know? Because again... We had the Jewish Bible before the New Testament was, was given to us. So how did the church know that the Jewish Bible was of God? The prophets had proven themselves that what they spoke were exactly what God did, along with the signs and the, 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 the miracles that they were able to do. And so we were able to look at them, and the people of God were able to affirm that what they have is the Word of God. And so that is just one criteria of how they established who and what words were from God and which ones were not from God. And so, go next to the third part of his publishing process. And we're going to look at the canonicity. Now that's just a, a big word that simply means um, when something is um, said to be canon, it is um, said to be definitely inspired by God. It is said to be that we know and we can see there is evidence to say that this is sacred Scripture. And it is put into what we call canon. And so that's what we're looking about. How did God publish what we see today as sacred Scripture, as inspired revelation of God? And this is what we get under canonicity. Notice what it says. We must understand that the Bible is actually one book with one divine author. Though it was written over a period of 1,500 years through the pens of almost 40 human writers. Now that's an important thing to think about too because when you get to know the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you understand that this book from Genesis to Revelation was written over a period of 1,500 years through pens of 40 different authors. And yet, from Genesis to Revelation, it all fits perfectly together and tells one single story over a period of 1,500 years, and I forget how many different countries. But 
This book was collected through all these vehicles and people that God spoke through and God inspired to write His Word, and yet it all speaks one story. But then notice what it says next. The Bible began with the creation account of Genesis 1. Um, 1 and 2, I guess is what that means. Written by Moses about 1405... Yeah, I'm sorry, the creation account was in Genesis 1 through 2. Written by Moses about 1405 B.C. And it extends to the eternity future account of Revelation 21-22 written by the Apostle John about A.D. 95. During this time, God progressively revealed Himself and His purposes in the inspired Scriptures. And you know, we've been talking about that on Sunday morning, about how He began uh, revealing to us what the Messiah was going to be when He started in Genesis chapter 3 and He said He's going to be the seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. And then we, we move on into other revelations of what He is going to be. And He's going to, uh, he's going to be the sacrificial lamb. He is going to be a, a, a prophet like Moses, or, or even greater than Moses. And He's going to give us the Word of God in an even greater way than Moses gave it to us. And He's going to be a king greater than David whose kingdom will never end. And then in Isaiah we get to see that He's going to be a, a son that is given to us, a child that is born and He's going to be born of a virgin and His name is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And, and you know, we've, we've been going through this. But the point is this. From Genesis to Revelations, God has been revealing and progressively revealing through mankind um, why we are the way that we are, how we got where we are, what we need, um, how we're going to be brought back to Him. Uh, and so we see that God has been progressively revealing all these things through inspiration of man in the Holy Scriptures. Right. 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 That's what I'm saying. That's right. It's such a great evidence of it having to be really one author. Even though it was 40 different men and 40 different pens, one author. One author wrote this book from Genesis to Revelation. And it begins with creation to begin with, and it stretches all the way to the eternal state, to the future kingdom that will never end. And so ultimately what we have there is we have everything you need from beginning to end. Right. Right. We would have messed it up somewhere along the way if it had been all man. Yeah. That's to me that's just something else, you know, that's that's amazing that bolsters my faith yep. to know that God wrote this book. Yes, he used human hands to pin it down, but you can clearly see that he was the one writing it the whole time. I agree. I agree. All right, so next it says, God progressively revealed Himself and His purposes in the inspired Scriptures. But this raises a significant question. 
How do we know what supposed sacred writings were to be included in the canon of Scripture and which ones were to be excluded? And so, with regard to the Old Testament, by the time of Christ, all of the Old Testament had been written and accepted in the Jewish community. The last book, Malachi, had been completed about 430 B.C., and not only does the Old Testament canon of Christ's day conform to the Old Testament, which has since been used throughout centuries, but it, but it does not contain the uninspired and spurious Apocrypha, the, the group of 14 rogue writings which were written after Malachi and attached to the Old Testament about 200 to 150 B.C. in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint appearing to this very day in some versions of the Bible. However, not one passage from the Apocrypha is cited by any New Testament writer, nor did Jesus affirm any of it as He recognized the Old Testament canon of His era. And so we're going to look at that here in a minute, but I'd like to talk about the three widely accepted ways that... Um, and we'll go back to the page. I, I think I skipped over that paragraph and for purpose, but... We're going to go back and look at how, what criteria that they use to say these are indeed sacred scriptures. And so go back to the uh, last paragraph, next to the last paragraph on the page of Revelation and Inspiration and Canonicity. Notice it says this Over the centuries, three widely recognized principles were used to validate those writings which came as a result of divine revelation and inspiration. First, so here's the first criteria. The writing had to have a recognized prophet or apostle as its author, or one associated with them, as in the case of Mark, Luke, Hebrews, James, and Jude. And so ultimately, they believed that Mark was writing his gospel under the influence of Peter's eyewitness. All right? And so that's why we have Mark's gospel included in the canon of the Bible because it was actually uh, the apostolic authority that was being delivered there was actually from Peter. And then also, what did it say next? Uh, Luke. And so Luke um, was influenced by Paul. So the Gospel of Luke, they believe, was actually uh, inspired by Paul and Paul's revelation of Jesus and the life of Christ. And then Hebrews. So... Basically, we, um, there was some concern in the latter years of uh, do we know exactly who the author of Hebrews is? And we did that study through Hebrews. I think Tim will remember that. Some of you else will remember that. And, and I think that we largely found that history actually shows that the early church and the early church fathers didn't really question but actually believed that it was a Pauline epistle. And so... Uh, they, they believed very, hard, very wholeheartedly that Hebrews was indeed from the Apostle Paul. However, um, because its writing style is a little different from, his, uh, from the other books, uh, there has been some question in, in the, I say latter years, I don't really know how many years it's been. But the point being is that early church understood and believed that Hebrews was a Pauline epistle. And we went over the reasons why from Hebrews we believe it's actually Paul and Luke is actually writing it. There are many believe that Hebrews is actually a sermon that Paul preached from the Old Testament of Leviticus and Luke is recording this sermon as Paul preaches. 
And so, again, that's, that, there's no evidence to back that up other than the fact that the early church believed that it was a Pauline epistle. And so, those, that's the reason why there. Uh, James and Jude also being the, uh, the half-brothers of Jesus. And so, second, the writing could not disagree with or contradict previous Scripture. So when they were trying to determine the Old Testament and what was actually sacred writings, again, the first thing was, is it from a verified prophet? And we know because God said this is how they will be verified, right? The New Testament in the same way. Is it by a verified apostle? And we know again because it was verified by, by what they did, by whether or not they walked with Jesus and whether or not they, they, they actually saw Jesus as eyewitnesses to His life, death, and resurrection. And then second, does the writing that they're giving disagree in any way with former Scripture? So again, in other words, if it's from God, God ain't 99% on it, right? He's 100%. So whatever God says over here is going to be in agreement with over here. This is the reason why um, for a long time the church didn't, many in the church didn't want to include the book of James in the canon because they felt like the book of James contradicted what Paul wrote about in Romans. Paul was all about salvation by faith alone. And then here James comes in and says, yeah, but faith without works is dead. And so you see that you are not saved by faith alone, but through works is what James would say. But the point that James was making, he wasn't arguing with Paul. The point that James was making was that genuine faith, which you are saved alone by, will prove to be evident by the works that you do. All right? And he made that point very clear. He said... You say you have faith, show me your faith without your works. But I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, faith without works is what? Dead. It's not genuine faith. So they had to see that Paul and, uh, that Paul and James were not contradicting each other. They were saying the same thing. And, and so ultimately they saw that yes... Paul indeed, Scripture lines up with all the rest, and James, Scripture lines up with Paul and all the rest, and because of who they were and their apostolic authority, their stuff is included in, in the canon. All right? And so that was another thing. The writing could not disagree with, or so there had to be spiritual unity. Let me put it like that. There had to be spiritual unity in the Scripture to be included in the canon. And then third, it says. The writing had to have a general consensus by the church as an inspired book. So there again, um, when it came to the New Testament, now the Old Testament is, is easy for us. Let me, let me tell you why. Because Jesus Himself verified the Old Testament. Jesus Himself came in, and we'll read it here in a minute from Luke chapter 24, but Jesus told the, uh, the two men on the road to Emmaus, He opened up the Scriptures to them and showed them that they all speak of Him. And it says He began with Moses, and He went to the prophets, and He went to the Psalms. And so ultimately Jesus used all the books of the Old Testament to show them that this is inspired Scripture about me. And so for me, and should be for you, Understanding the Old Testament to be canon and inspired by God should be pretty easy if you follow Christ, right? Because if Christ believed it, and you believe Christ, 
Right? So, but with the New Testament, again, it says here that the writing had to have a general consensus by the church as an inspired book. So again, the church had to agree together that, yes, we see the apostolic authority, or we see the prophetic authority, and we see that it is in agreement and has spiritual unity with the rest of the Word of God. And if that did not line up, then it was not included as sacred Scripture, again, because God does not do 99%, He does 100%. And so the criteria for putting your Bible together was very strict. Very strict. All right? And so that's, that's an important thing to understand. All right, now, go with me to Luke chapter 24. I want to show you that. Because I want to show you that Jesus actually endorsed the Old Testament. So we can rest assured that the Old Testament for sure is. And since the New Testament is about Jesus and Jesus proved he, who He was and the apostles walked with Him and proved their ministry and who they were, then I believe also that we can as a church look at their writings and their agreement with all the rest of Scripture and we can use the same criteria to be able to say that yes, we believe wholeheartedly that this is the inspired Word of God, just like God said He would reveal Himself to. So in Luke chapter 24, in verse 27 first, notice what this says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So here he's speaking about, when he says beginning with Moses, what do you think he's talking about here? Huh? The first five books, that's exactly right. He's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. So here we see that Jesus endorses the first five books of the Old Testament as being inspired by God, as being without error, as being infallible, as being trustworthy, and as being about Him. Right? And notice what He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So not just the five books of Moses, but all the prophets. And here you get into books like, for instance, um, I think um, First and Second Kings even. Even though it's a historical genre, we are still looking at a book that was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Or you get into First and Second Chronicles. Don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that was Samuel. Um, Samuel or Ezra? No, Ezra wrote Nehemiah, Ezra, and... Um, so anyway, here's what you've got. You've got some kind of uh, prophetical influence on the majority of the books of the Old Testament. And, and we'll get into the ones that, um, the, the uh, poetry books here in a minute. But Jesus endorses the first five books. He endorses all the prophets. And it says in 27, He interpreted to them in all the what? What does He call it? The Scriptures. So here Jesus calls these books right here sacred scriptures, inspired Word of God, and He says that they are things concerning Himself. Now go down with me to verse 44 of the same chapter. Then He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and now he adds another one. 
and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then verse 45 says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. So again, here's the point that we see in this. Jesus Christ Himself endorsed the Old Testament. He endorsed the prophets. He endorsed the poetic writings. He endorsed the... And the prophets actually endorsed... Um, King Solomon as having wisdom from God, which wrote Song of Solomon, wrote Ecclesiastes. And so, um, some way or another, all of the Bible is endorsed by Jesus. And then Jesus endorses the prophets. And then the prophets endorse Solomon, and so on and so on. And so ultimately, this is the way that they would structure and conclude that this is what we consider to be canon. This is what we consider to be sacred writings inspired by God. And this is how your Bible began to be developed. Because you actually didn't have a Bible. Now you had the Old Testament Bible um, as it was put together finally in Malachi, the very last prophet before God went silent for 400, uh, was it 400 years I think it was. And so you have the Old Testament there. But whenever it comes to um, the New Testament, you know, we had to wait a while for that. We didn't have it for a long time. And so I think it was like three or 400 A.D. before the church finally put together the final Bible that we have today. Alright? And so um, that's kind of what we deal with now is that they were able to see that all of these were affirmed as inspired Word of God in some way in one, meeting all of these criteria together. He says next, By Christ's time, the Old Testament canon had been divided up into two lists of 22 or 24 books respectively, each of which contained all the same material as the 39 books of our modern versions. In the 22-book canon, so even though we have 39 books today, it was all of that included in what they saw as 22 books. And they says, it says here, in the 22 book canon they had, Jeremiah and Lamentations were considered as one book. So even though we have it as two books, they would put books together. So there, our 39 books was the same as their 22 books. The only difference is they put books together. And actually it makes sense. When you think about it, Jeremiah was prophesying about the Babylonian captivity, right? And Jeremiah actually saw the Babylonian captivity. And that's how the prophet Jeremiah closes. And then what is Lamentations about? Huh? The captivity. And Jeremiah watching it and weeping over it and, um, and praying to God about what he's seeing. And so ultimately Lamentations comes right after exactly what ends in Jeremiah. So you could see where the two books could actually go together as as one. But again, and I'm not sure why our Bible changed it instead of one book into two books. I'm not sure, but, but it, this is where we get the difference in it. And then it also says, and Judges and Ruth were also. And ultimately what you have there again, Judges really shows you what the people of God look like whenever they're rebelling against God and every person is doing what's right in their own eyes and they go into captivity because of their sin and then God raises up a deliverer and brings them out of it. And that's the repeating theme through Judges, right? But then when you move from Judges into Ruth, 
you get a picture of God's people and the remnant of God's people that are helping each other and that are loving each other and that are there for each other. And so ultimately, Judges leaves you with thinking, man, the people of God just can't get it right. (laughs) Judges leaves you thinking, this is just a chaotic thing that the people of God cannot escape sin, they cannot get out of it. And then you go to Ruth and you see this contrast of a remnant of God's people that God... Uh, um, preserves the line, that the, the lineage that the Messiah is going to come from. And He shows them loving each other and helping each other and walking in faith, uh, in faith toward God. And so again, you can see how those two books could absolutely have been one book. Judges and Ruth and how they actually, even though they contradict each other, they complement each other. And they show one side of God's people and then another side of God's people. Does that make sense? All right. And so that's kind of the way it was divided. But then here's how the 24 book format was divided. So the Hebrew Old Testament 24 book was divided first and the first five books were the law of Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were the law of Moses. And then you had the prophets. And there you had um, the sixth book would have been Joshua, 7th Judges, 8th Samuel, or 1st and 2nd Samuel. 9th would have been 1st and 2nd Kings. So you see how we have the book 1st Samuel and 2nd Samuel. They would have combined those. We have the book 1st Kings and 2nd Kings. They, the 24 book would have combined those. But again, nothing's missing. It's all there. So it's not that all of a sudden we went from a 22 book to a 24 book and now we're at a 39 book. No, it's always been this is what it is. All right, And so this is just the way they divided it up. Then 10, of course, was the latter prophets. The latter prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets were all included together as one book. And the only reason they call them minor prophets is because the prophecy that is recorded is much smaller than, say, Isaiah. That is, what is it, 66 books long, I believe? And so you have these large prophets that they call major prophets. But it's not saying that Isaiah was a greater prophet than, say, Jonah or Nahum or Habakkuk. But instead, it's just simply saying that Isaiah's prophecy that is recorded is a, is a major major prophecy, whereas the other ones are, are smaller in size and smaller in content, and so they are considered minor prophets. But all the minor prophets would have been included in one book. Then you have the writings, which would be the genres of uh, uh, poetic literature or wisdom literature, if you will, and that would include like the Psalms and the Proverbs and Job. And then we have what they called the five roles, or the, um, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, but the uh, megaloth, I believe is how you pronounce it. But it is the Song of Solomon. And basically these are just five short scrolls that were usually grouped together into one. Again, we have separate books for it. So the Song of Solomon is just a very short book for us, but it was grouped together with... Ruth, and then it was grouped together with Lamentations, and it was grouped together with Ecclesiastes and Esther. And this is where the 24-book canon was put together. All right, And then you have the historical books, and this is just uh, historical records of the Jews. And you have books like Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, and then uh, Chronicles 1st uh, and 2nd that were included together. So the same three key tests of canonicity that applied to the Old Testament also applied to the New Testament. 
in the case of Mark and the case of Luke and Acts, the authors were considered to be, in effect, the penmen for Peter and Paul, respectively. So again, Mark wrote the gospel, but they believed that he was the penman for Peter. The early church understood that and believed it, and that's why they included it in the canon of Scripture. Because even though Mark wrote it, the apostolic authority was Peter. And then the same way with Luke, when he wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts. Even though Luke was not an apostle, he was the penman for the apostle Paul when he wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote um, Acts. And so there you have the same criteria. You have the... um, the apostolic authority, what did we say it was? The, the scriptural unity, and you have the, um, the church recognizing it as scriptural truth together. And so when all three of those criteria are met, then they considered it to be sacred scripture. And then it says here that James and Jude were written by Christ's half-brothers, while Hebrews is the only New Testament book whose authorship is unknown for certain, its content is so in line with both the Old Testament and the New Testament that the early church concluded it must have been written by an apostolic associate. And so the 27 books of the New Testament have been universally accepted since A.D. 350 to 400 as inspired by God. And this is the criteria that had to be met for your Bible to be put together to what, the way it is today. And again, go back and look at the unity of it. Go back and look at the uh, prophetic people that God inspired to write it and the evidence that was in their life. Go back and look at the apostles and the evidence that was in their lives. And you have every reason to believe that God indeed inspired through the Holy Spirit these men to write these words of God. And you can believe that God has protected it, that God has made sure that it is still without error in its original record, that God has made sure that it is complete in its revelation, that nothing's missing, everything's there, that it's supposed to be there. And so then he says that um, preservation is the next thing. How did God preserve it? How can one be sure that the revealed and inspired word, written word of God, which was recognized as canonical by the early church, has been handed down to this day without any loss of material? That's a good question, right? Because how many people and how many religions today will look at you and tell you that we do not believe that that Bible that you have in your hands is without error today? Therefore... We need something outside of those scriptures to direct us and to guide us. Y'all tracking with me? That's not what we believe. We believe that this book alone, because again, this book says through the Word of God that it is the sole source for our reproof, for our correction, for our instruction in righteousness. And so we don't believe that we need anything outside of that book. As a matter of fact, Even the Apostle Paul made sure that what he was given through Jesus himself lined up with what the Apostles taught. And to go with me to Galatians, I want to show you this. Galatians 
Go me to Galatians, I think it's chapter, the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2. I thought I wrote it down. And this is where we'll close tonight. We'll pick up next week on the preservation. But Galatians chapter 1, let's start there, and I think it's at the end of it. Actually, let's start in verse 11. And we'll go through Hebrews 2 verse 9. We'll just read it, and I want you to pay attention to what Paul says here, okay? He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. What's he saying right there? This is the Word of God, right? Alright, keep reading. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it, how? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now listen, should we just at this point believe Paul that he saw a blinding light on the road, that God gave him this, and that should we just believe it without any evidence? No, and Paul wouldn't have us to. Keep going with me. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Notice what he says next. I did not immediately consult with anyone. In other words, just because he had a vision on the road to Damascus, he did not immediately go and start preaching this gospel, did he? Look what he does. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except Jesus, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, or Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So again, he's not going to the churches, he's not preaching the gospel, even though he's seen Jesus on the road, right? So let's see why not. Keep going with me. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And then notice what happened in chapter 2 verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them... Here he's talking about the apostles and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, in other words, the, the big apostles, all right, the leaders, and then he sets this gospel before him. He says, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. What does it say next? Why did he set his gospel before them? In order to make sure I wasn't running in vain or had not run in vain. So in other words, here's what Paul said. Now did Paul have every right to believe that that vision of Jesus he saw on the road to Damascus was God? Every reason to believe it, right? But instead he takes his gospel and after so long he says, you know, I better make sure that I'm not running in vain. 
I better make sure that this gospel that I've been given lines up so he takes it and he sets it before those apostles that... Because in other words, again, it has to line up with the other word that God has given. And if it don't line up, then what does Paul say his running has been? That's pretty important, right? That's pretty important. And so I want us to be able to look at it and see that there has always been a unity of Scripture. And Paul even tells them in Galatians chapter 1, last Scripture, I promise, I promise. Galatians chapter 1, look in verse 6 and 7, or starting in verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In other words, you're not following the gospel that's been preached to you, the gospel of God. You're turning to a different gospel. Keep going with me. Not that there is another one, because there's not another gospel, right? There's only one gospel. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And ultimately, they were trying to say the only way you're going to be saved is if you do this and do this and you've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow the law of Moses and you've got to do this good work. And as long as you do this, that's the gospel. Is that the gospel? No. He says, that's not a gospel. And then notice what he says next in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, what do we do? Let him be accursed. Here's the point. Paul knew. Paul knew that he had been given the Word of God. How did he know it? Because he said it before the apostles. Their Word had lined up with everything that God has spoken before. Now he sets his gospel before the apostles. It lines up with everything that is spoken before. And now that Paul has been in unity with the rest of the church, he can step back and he can say, the gospel that I preach is a gospel worth preaching and it ain't going to make me run in vain. I'm going to have fruit from this gospel because this gospel is definitely from God. And ultimately, we want to be able to do the same thing. That's the reason why I'm skeptical today. Not just skeptical, I don't believe it. When somebody comes to me and says, Oh, I had a revelation from God. And God told me this, and God told me that, and God told me that. Well, you know what? I'm not saying God can't do that. I'm not. But I am going to tell you this. It will line up completely with the revelation that we already have. And if it don't, if it contradicts at all, guess what? We have one sole authority that gives us reproof in our faith, that gives us correction, that gives us doctrine, that gives us instruction in righteousness. There is one hope that we put our faith in, and that is the Word of God. And the Word of God is proven to be the Word of God. And there's no question about it. And so, I believe wholeheartedly that when I hold that Bible in my hands, that I have the infallible, unadulterated Word of God. And I can put all of my hope and my trust into it. And I can model my life after it. And I can know that if I follow it, I'm going to be correct in doctrine. I'm going to be correct 
in reproof. I'm going to be correct in instruction, in righteousness. And that is the only thing that I need. Scripture is sufficient. It is sufficient. And I do not need anything else. So that's the lesson for this week. Next week we'll continue, so keep your papers. We'll pick up next week on preservation, and we'll see how did God preserve this Word? How do we know that it has been preserved to be infallible and unadulterated uh, from the time it was given all the way to now? Any questions? All right. Thank you all for your time and attention. Let me pray and you'll be dismissed. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You, Lord, that You have revealed Yourself to us, that You have given us everything we need from the beginning of creation all the way to the eternal state. You have given us every revelation about You that we need. You have given it to us through the prophets, and then finally You have given it through us through Jesus, and the apostles laid the foundation of Jesus Christ, uh, and we continue to lay it today. And Father, I thank You for the Word that You've given us. Father, I pray, God, that You would help us to have absolute faith in it. Father, to know that it is our sole authority for all of our life and everything we need in this life. Father, I pray that You would help us to have faith that it is infallible, that it is with error, that it is very pure, even more pure than refined gold. And Father, I just pray, God, that You would help us to desire Your Word even more than our necessary food. Father, I pray that we would understand that we do not live by bread alone, but we do live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to choose life. Father, I pray that you would help us to follow your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to keep our faith and our trust only in your word. God, we love you. We thank you so much for what you have done for us and, Lord, what you show us in your word. Lord, And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.